and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back, everyone. Occasionally, I hear a story where I completely lose track of time, and this is one of those stories. Following on from episode 26 with Jessica about the vagus nerve, I had a lot of you reaching out wanting to know more about the autonomic system. So I went searching for someone who works in this field that can talk about it from another aspect. I would like to introduce you to Mari Claire, the founding director of the POTS Foundation Australia. She is a clinical nurse consultant who co-heads a multidisciplinary practice in Adelaide. They work with clients who have long COVID and or POTS which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Interestingly, both her and I have POTS, and today we are going to hear her story. From the moment she started talking about her grandmother and her childhood, I was hooked. Marie Claire is a great storyteller, and she has lived experience in this space. Let me give you a bit of a roadmap to this interview. The first part of this episode is about Marie Claire's adventures overseas volunteering in Eastern Europe in the midst of a humanitarian crisis, the one that followed the Romanian Revolution and the fall of the Berlin Wall. The second part of this interview is about how POTS started to show up in her world and the challenges she faced trying to get a medical professional to hear and believe her. And we finish this episode with Marie Claire's researcher, clinical and founder hat on where we discuss POTS and long COVID and the latest research out there and where you can go to get some help. So let me introduce you to this aspiring, knowledgeable and determined lady. I'd like to welcome Claire onto Challenges That Change Us. Thank you, Claire, for coming today. Oh, thank you for having me, Ali. I'm really excited to be talking to you. So am I. And for the audience, Claire and I haven't met before. Today's our first day online. So I always, you know, get so excited and we start having a chat and we forget to press record and (laughs) halfway through. So we're now starting from the beginning and we've just hit record. So we'll get into it now. Claire, I really like to start the podcast with a couple of questions. And the first one is, is there an animal that best describes you? And if yes, what animal and why? I found that question really hard when you posed that. It's not something that I've ever really thought about. And I think a lot of people will really resonate with the fact that we change our perception of ourselves as we grow older. I used to think I was a really big pack animal that just loved to be around others, you know, the wild horse kind of running with its pack. But I've maybe it's my old age, I've just come to learn that I'm actually a little solitary and I'm definitely stubborn. And I'm definitely pretty robust. And so I think of myself more like that kind of polar bear or bear that's, you know, a little off in the wilderness on its own, Um, knows that it needs to interact with others, but does enjoy that time out in nature on my own. Yeah. 
It will be interesting as we start to unpack this podcast as to whether that's changed with your diagnosis or not, you know, whether that's been significant in in that change from being so much around people all the time and wanting to be involved in people to needing a little bit more isolation. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'd never really linked it to that, but that that would be interesting to reflect on. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And the other question I love to ask is, was there a place when you were growing up, perhaps a room or, you know, a place outside or a town that you used to love? And what was it about that? Yeah, I grew up in Western Australia. I was born in the wheat belt out there, which is, you know, just kind of to the southeast of of Perth. And then my family moved every almost 18 months. My dad worked for elders and my mum was a teacher and then my dad became a teacher later. So we, we just moved all the time. So there was one kind of place of stability for me, and that was actually the town where I was born, just out of a wage, and my grandparents had a farm, and it was just home. And I used to go there all the time. You know, my grandmother was one of these incredible women. When you look back on her, she was just so delightfully Irish and had a twinkle in her eye and would take you out you know, walking and golfing on the farm. Everything I learned to do, I learned to do at that place, you know, to roll a blade in the shearing shed, to swim in the dam, to play golf, you know, all those things. And it was a really special place for me. It was very sad when, you know, they had to leave it, but it's where I would consider home is. Home. As you're saying that, I was thinking my mum's got dementia and my girls go over and it's such a magical house. Like she sets up, you know, all the toys and it's like a fairy home. And, you know, mum's always saying to me, you don't think they're getting bored? And I'm like, oh, mum, they just love coming to you. You are always going to be cemented in their memory as a place that felt safe, fun, engaging, fully present. I'm like, you know, if you didn't have dementia, you'd probably be off down the street with your friends or doing something like you are fully available to them. And they're going to be saying one day on a podcast, like you just did, those memories that were created and that feeling of home. Yeah. And I think, you know, the reason my grandmother was like that was that she was like a lot of women brought up in the war era. She was, she's out on a farm isolated. We were her kind of contact with society. She would go into town once a week, but yeah, it was exactly that. If she had been a a working woman in the city, we wouldn't have had the same reflections on her, but she had so much time and energy to put into us when we were around that we were her one focus and delight. She was just the most amazing woman. Yeah. What was her name? Well, we called her Bimmy, which was my eldest uh, sister couldn't say granny and so she called her Bimmy and everyone called her Bimmy in the end but her name was Pat Hooper and she she actually was from South Australia originally up in the wheat belt here and from quite a you know relatively poor Irish family she you know her story like everybody from the war generation is astounding you could make a feature movie out of the troubles and difficulties she went through in her life and yet I don't ever remember one crossword from her or one negative comment it was always positivity yeah incredible 
And I guess that might have played a role because we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, what's gotten you to where you are today, Mm. but we're going to take it back to, I was thinking even starting with your volunteer work because you're now a mother of four and you've opened the foundation and you're at Adelaide University. There's so much, but that's not where you started. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that time you spent overseas doing the volunteer work? Yeah. So as I said before, I was, you know, I was a pretty stubborn, strong independent country girl I was definitely of the mindset that I could do anything that any other man could do I was strong I was athletic and I had a lot of impatience too I had a really strong sense of wanting to do things in the world but I came from quite a sheltered not sheltered but isolated background and this is back pre the world of internet which may be hard to conceptualize for some of your listeners but you know, we didn't really know much about what was outside our own little world. I just wanted to go out and have an adventure. I really did. I, some of my friends were going off to university. I just had no interest in it. You know, I didn't want to waste another three years of my life kind of sitting around in school, which I found I was very good at school and naturally bright, but I just had no real interest in it. So I got on a bus back when we got on buses when I was 18 and just came across the Nullarbor to Melbourne on an adventure, not really knowing what I was going to be doing. I got a job in Melbourne working with disabled kids at the time at what they called the Spastic Society, which was cerebral palsy uh, children. Loved that. And along the way, uh, got involved in, you know, a lot of things, working with refugees, Spanish, was during the El Salvadorian War, and I just had this real penchant for being around people from other cultures. And it was through that that some of my friends kind of said, well, why don't you go, you know, over to one of these places and have a look and you know, one thing led to another and I ended up in Eastern Europe at a time when the Berlin Wall had just collapsed. So this was at the end of 1989. There was a lot of change in the world and a really remarkable time actually. We had grown up with the Iron Curtain being such a dominant feature of our history lessons, you know, the stories of people behind the curtain who were living these oppressed communistic lives and stories of people escaping of people starving and so on and so then all of a sudden I'm there in Eastern Europe now when the Soviets kind of pulled out of all of these countries there was a massive void there was a lot of devastation left there was a lot of revolution and so there had been the Romanian revolution and quite famously they you know the country rose up against Ceausescu their their president and they killed him And they were apparently free, but there was, you know, decades of oppression that had been left behind. So very early on in 1990, there was a discovery of these orphanages right across Romania full of um, children who were really malnourished, unwell and had HIV and AIDS. And there was a humanitarian crisis of quite significant proportions and I just happened to be there there was a kind of international group of people that were working to deliver aid and food and uh, different things into the eastern Bloc. and so I was with a group of people in Austria and Austria sits on the the doorstep really of Eastern Europe and has always been the city of spies they used to call it because of its really close proximity to all of those borders 
So I just spent two years with a group of young international, mostly singles, in little trucks just chucking food and aid and supplies. It was it was based around a kind of ecumenical Christian faith organisation and there was people from all walks of life, all languages. Some of them didn't speak English. We all, you know, just melded together. We would cart stuff in for the Red Cross, different groups, and uh, leave it with these different organisations. And it was a two years incredible adventure, really. And when you reflect on that time, what, what have you taken away from that time? How lucky I was. You don't yeah. think when you're kind of 20 years old that you're living in history, but you are. I mean, I was living right in an incredible period in our history and got to see firsthand lessons that I can only hope my children can can absorb through books, but what decimating kind of consequences come from authoritarian organisations and particularly communism. I think the real thing that will always sitting in my memory is what it does to the human nature and how devoid of hope and initiative these people were, you know, who had spent their whole lives under a, you know, a, a, a regime that had taken every possibility of them having self-determination away from them. So we would come across people, it was a, a regular habit of the communists to remove children from their parents and send them off. A lot of these orphanages, they weren't orphans. They were kids that had been taken from their parents to keep their parents in control. So if somebody was a scientist, the way that the government would control them would be to take their child away and send them to these orphanages. And so the you know, that's how they got compliance out of their people. Scary, isn't it? Like even just listening to yeah. you, I just, yeah, it's so far removed from our reality at the moment. Well, from my reality, I can't speak for everyone else, but just to think about that. Yeah, and it's lost. I think what's scary to me is it's lost to the human consciousness. Like, you know, I see generationally, even my own children who are now young adults <clears throat> and married and, they don't have a concept of how oppressive communism had been just in my generation. You know, it so quickly leaves our consciousness and that takes with it when it leaves our consciousness the lessons and the warnings that came from that, you know, and that's slightly scary to me but also I, I feel really privileged to have been there and seen you know, what yeah. all the human spirit of all these countries, you know, nobody went and invaded them and freed them. They all rose up from within to claim their independence and their freedom back. Mm. Do you know what happened to all those children in the orphanage? Like do you ever, have you ever been able to circle back around and meet anyone that, you know, maybe not the person that you would have seen on the side of the road but yeah. someone that had been through that period? That's a great question. I've never been back to Romania since probably 1993 would have been, 92 would have been my last trip. It was like stepping back 100 years, what I imagine would have been 100 years ago. It was just a very poverty-stricken country. I think about those people a lot. I haven't managed to ever go back, and I'm not sure I could. You know, there's something mm. I've it's not a burning desire either I, and somehow I just want to kind of keep those memories as they were. I have occasionally come across Romanians and talked to them about how Romania is now and, and it's clear to me that 
you know, there's ongoing, you don't get rid of, you know, decades of oppression in an instant. There's, mm. there's consequences to that and post-traumatic stress kind of consequences to, you know, familial lines of people that have had devastation to their own families. But, you know, I think it's really moved on in a way that I couldn't conceptualise back then. I just remember just looking at it and thinking this, mess is beyond repair and who's ever going to fix it. I know that a lot of those kids, the ones that we initially saw when we went in, I mean, they were on death's doorstep. They were, there were five, six to a cot living in their own feces and, you know, malnourished. I mean, anyone can probably go now. I haven't done it myself, but you can probably go find some stuff online about those initial discoveries in Romania there was a lot of footage at the time so I imagine it wasn't a very happy pathway for those kids but to be fair a large percentage of the orphanages weren't like that and they were people doing their best to look after kids who for whatever reason had been taken from their parents or lost their parents I'm sure over time most of those kids would have ended up back in society the Romanians did take some steps not long after everything opened up to kind of protect the orphanages because the West was dumping food aid, everything in there, and then there was this sudden urgency to get these kids out of there, and I think they made the right decision to block that and say, no, no, these these kids are a Romanian and we need to look after them. Um, but, yeah, I don't actually know the answer to your question. I need to explore that a bit more. No, that's Yeah, it's so interesting though. I just feel like I've been picked up and put back in time, Mm. you know, just listening to you talk about that. So what happened for you? You said you finished in 92. What finished up for you or what was your next chapter? Yeah, so it was initially a a two-year kind of experience and in my first year, at the end of my first year, I met there was lots of young single people my age, you know, travelling in and out doing the same work and I happened across my husband, John, who's from Adelaide and we met in 1991 and he was doing similar work in Vienna and so we got to know each other and the relationship started and I had fully intended that I was just going to stay on in Vienna. I loved what I was doing. It suited me. I was very strong and as I said before, athletic, and this work was quite heavy. It was big kind of vans full of stuff and the guys in uh, Bulgaria, some of the people we used to deliver to used to call me the man woman because there was no (laughs) escalators or lifts or anything and I'd have to carry all these boxes up these stairs, you know, seven flights of stairs in the middle of the night. And, you know, it was war-torn areas. We were driving through. Yugoslavia would have guns pointed us at checkpoints, would sometimes would be held in between checkpoints points one time for five days you know threatened with incarceration all these things and I was just like this was my world I just thought you know I'd arrived where I I thrived yeah and then I met this guy and he (laughs) good old John John. (laughs) and John had a real pension for the Middle East he had worked in uh, Turkey and he he was also probably more so adventurous. See, I mean, if he had wanted, we probably would have ended up in Tibet, I think. But the next best thing was, you know, forget the Eastern Bloc, there's the Soviets are pulling out of Central Asia, which is on the old Silk Road. So Central Asia is to the west of China and kind of entrapped there between 
Siberia at the north and Europe over at the west and then you've got China on the east and it's in the middle of nowhere literally I mean if you wanted to be more kind of (laughs) isolated you couldn't be and right in the middle of Central Asia is a country called Uzbekistan and that had was just opening up and needing people there was a group of people wanting to go in and kind of help with some initial aid stuff and John was really keen to go there and I was a bit torn anyway in the end we got married in at the end of 1992 and decided rather than go back to Vienna which all seemed a bit tame would go out to the wild west of Uzbekistan so that's what we did. And how long were you out there for? Well, we initially, and this is where my POTS journey, which we'll talk about in a minute, started. We came home to get married and were only here in Australia for a few months. And then we travelled back through Malaysia and we spent 24 or 48 hours in Malaysia. And that was important because we think this is where things stemmed from, our health issues. But when we arrived in Vienna, we were going back there to pick up our stuff and go off to Turkey for a few months for language learning. We were both sick. Well, John first came down with a fever and I didn't know then because I didn't know him so well, but subsequently I've understood John never gets sick (laughs) and um, it should have been a warning light to me. But about 24 hours later, I also came down with a fever and it was clear we'd caught some kind of virus travelling through Malaysia or on the plane, who knows, but we had very high tropical light fevers and became quite unwell, but still managed our way down to Turkey where we went for three months to do some language learning and that escalated quite quickly in terms of John's health and he actually ended up in a hospital there in liver failure. And so that was the start of our kind of health, well, my health journey. He recovered actually quite well from that, but we never did find out what that virus was. We think possibly it was dengue fever. We're not sure. Yeah. Mm. I'm so enthralled in what you're saying. I'm like the experiences that you've had and what you've seen in this tiny 10 minutes that we've spoken, I'm like, do we really have to move on? <laughs> like can't we keep talking about this? Yeah. But no, I was going to ask you because you said that was the beginning of your pot, mm. so you got the virus as well, and that was one of the reasons why we've brought you on here today. We did a um, podcast with Jessica, episode 26, around the autonomic system mm. and lots of people asking questions around that. And for those that don't know, I've also been diagnosed with with POTS and then I thought who better to get on than the founder of the POTS Foundation in Australia as we're trying to raise awareness across the country internationally yes but particularly in Australia because we just it's not where it needs to be Mm. right now and it's something that we're seeing more and more of after COVID-19 which we will talk about but before we get into the information with your founder's hat on let's talk about your experience with it like how did POTS show up in your world what did it look like what was your journey like so I think I can remember the moment, the moment in time that I would say I got POTS. Now, like anybody who gets postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, they can usually identify a little bit of a kind of past history of propensity for milder versions of the syndrome. But there is no doubt that there's a point in time where it escalates in people and in Often in people, that's really suddenly after an environmental trigger and that environmental trigger might be a virus or it might be surgery or pregnancy or a trauma. But in me, it was clearly that virus. So taking you back to when we had travelled through Malaysia and we arrived in Vienna and we arrived, we were only going to be there for about three days and 
We woke up that first morning, John was sick. We woke up the second morning, I was sick. But we were young and quite robust. I mean, illness wasn't foreign to me. I'd been working in Eastern Europe. I'd probably got every bacterial dysentery known to man, which actually makes me wonder if that was a little bit of how this all started as well. But suffice to say, we went out on the Sunday, you know, back in those days, things were a bit more traditional. We went off to church with friends, German-speaking church. We were sitting, you know, just in church. I was feeling a bit unwell because I had still a bit of a fever. You wouldn't even think of going out with a fever now, but we did back then. I remember sitting there thinking, oh, this is a bit weird. I was just starting to feel really hot and I felt this rushing, literally like a rush, and I could almost feel it and hear it in my ears, like a a roar just moving up my body, and I suddenly came to the realisation I'm about to pass out sitting up in a church, and I just grabbed John's hand and got up and kind of made my way and out of the church, and I couldn't see a thing. I had lost my vision. We got to the back of the church and walked out into the foyer and he just sat me down. My vision came back, but my heart was pounding. I just, and I remember him asking me what was going on and I couldn't articulate it. I just couldn't, I remember that feeling of thinking, how can you not know what's just happened? Because it was so dramatic and it was so loud in my ears and it was so, you know, such an incredible thing that I thought everybody around me must be able to see, feel and hear this, but clearly he didn't and he's just got this weird thing of being dragged out of church. He doesn't know I was blind. He didn't know I couldn't really focus my eyes. Anyway, I went to stand back up after it had gone and the same thing happened again and that was the start of, you know, well, a lifetime of illness really. I did have moments of getting a little bit better. The next day we pondered, we were supposed to fly out and we were a bit like, should we fly to Turkey? You know, John's still not well. I'm clearly not well. But we just had that that kind of thing of, well, this is probably just a virus. We'll get better in a few days. So we did go. I remember being just completely and utterly exhausted and not every time I stood up just feeling like I couldn't catch my breath like I might pass out again. We made it to Turkey and we were living, for those of you, your listeners who don't know, Turkey actually straddles Asia and Europe. So the city, Istanbul, sits with the Bosphorus in the middle, which is the river, and on the west you have Europe and on the east you have Asia. And we lived on the Asian side that would have to travel across to the European side to do our language training, which is about three hours in hot, stuffy taxis and public transport and you know within a day or two I just realized this was untenable every time I stood up I lost my vision if I was standing on a bus I was virtually sometimes passed out I mean I would lose kind of consciousness but not quite and certainly lose my hearing and my vision but John's health deteriorated quite quickly and I ended up having to take him across to what they call the International Hospital and that's when we discovered he was in liver failure, but this is a few weeks later, to be honest. And so then he was in hospital. They were dealing with him, so I was just trying to get on with my 
you know, manage my own symptoms. I knew I was losing weight and that's not a normal thing for me. I love my food. I just couldn't quite eat. I didn't know why I couldn't eat. I didn't put those two things together, but actually they were very important signs of POTS that I didn't realise were linked together. Eventually, some weeks later, when John had recovered and I was still persisting with these symptoms, we actually went back to that hospital and saw a doctor and she did some tests and everything came back as the usual. It's fine. But I had these heart rates and I remember my heart rate when they checked it at that time when I stood up was 200. I mean, it was just ridiculous. She actually was quite good, that doctor. I was naive to the medical system's view of this condition. And so looking back, I think, you know, she actually did everything that she could do. She didn't suggest that it was anything other than maybe you're still sick from this virus and you'll get better. Then it was, once I'd noticed, I wasn't, you know, medical at that time. I hadn't done any training and I hadn't realised that my heart was racing like that. Once that was identified, I was able to kind of track that a bit and that's what I discovered. Every time I had this incredible feeling of loss of vision and hearing, it was my heart rate was up around, you know, anywhere from 180 to 200 and sometimes uncountable and sometimes I couldn't even feel my pulse rate. But as soon as I laid down, it went away. And did you make that connection? I asked this because I didn't make that connection for 11 months. I thought I was getting sick. I didn't make the connection that it was when I yeah. stood. So I just thought I was dying, <laughs> right? I was like, I can't move in the world. I can't work. I can't stand up. Like, I must be dying. I never made that connection with the uprightness. But it sounds like Absolutely. You and I think part of that was we, we were church attenders and there's nothing quite like a church service. Oh, stand up, sit down, <laughs> stand up, kneel down. Stand up and sing. Yeah. Oh, you wouldn't be able to. It feels like you've got no air, right? And that's what I'm like, (laughs) I can't sing when I'm standing. And so I started to make those connections very early on. And the story actually progresses. And it's interesting you asked, did I make that connection? That It was that connection that really made me go, this is, you know, I didn't know the term orthostatic, but this is a postural condition. What can it be? And Clearly, some doctor somewhere knows what it is, so I just need to find a doctor to kind of work it out. Now, somewhere along the line, we had this three months in Turkey doing the language learning and we were heading for Uzbekistan and we we had a lot of time talking and going, is this the wise thing to do? Is John well enough to go? Am I well enough to go? And I don't really remember exactly how we came to that conclusion but I know that we decided that John was definitely well enough to go he just had to not drink alcohol for a year and we thought well we can manage that and I couldn't describe I do remember I just couldn't give a real reason for me not to go because I knew I could get through daily life it was a bit of a misery I was exhausted nobody knew what was wrong with me I couldn't articulate what was wrong with me so I didn't really have a reason to go this isn't a good decision and I had no knowledge Mm. around POTS and the environmental kind of stresses that are put on you and make POTS worse. And I'd imagine too, you know, from what we've just heard you tell us, you know, like you'd be like, I've just come from this war-torn country and I can kind of function but I can't and I feel something's wrong but I don't know what it is and I've been to the doctor, you know, like you can kind of make sense how when you say, I didn't really have a reason not to go. You can understand how you got to that, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it it is when we talk about the animal. (laughs) 
I, there's no doubt I have a very stubborn streak. And when I'm unwell, my family would say, you know, I, I do get a bit internalized with it. And, you know, I don't tend to seek help, is, which is typical, I think, of country people. And so, you know, I'm like, well, I don't have a reason not to go. I knew I didn't want to go, to be honest, but I didn't have a good reason not to. This is what we'd work towards. And, you know, what am I thinking? John was the one in liver failure and I'm fine. Yeah. All my blood tests show that I'm fine. Yeah. It's funny, actually, in Turkey, they have these men that go around and take blood pressures at cafes. And that's, you know, their way of earning a bit of money. And they used to come around and take blood pressures. And whenever they took my blood pressure, <laughs> take it two or three times. And they'd be like, you need to see a doctor, you know, in Turkish to me. And because my blood pressure was sitting around 70 or 80. And um, it was you know, clearly there was a big problem back then that hadn't been picked up. But anyway, that's an aside. So we decided we'd go to Uzbekistan. And one thing to know about Uzbekistan is that in the summer, it's regularly temperatures of around 45 to 50 degrees. Perfect for pots. <laughs> Perfect for pots. For when we talk about what um, <laughs> sets pots off, heat. <laughs> so I arrive in Uzbekistan in the middle of summer in 1993 with my husband. So to give you a concept, it's not the romantic Silk Road destination that you imagine. It is post-Soviet communist buildings you know, just barren, grey, concrete desert. The Soviets left and took every infrastructure with them. So there's not even shops that we would recognise as shops. Everything is based in the market. It's what people can grow. And then there are rations. So if you're a Soviet citizen, you would get rations of sugar, flour and bread and oil. But we were foreigners, so we couldn't get rations of those. So we couldn't even get those things so we had to live off what we could find at the market in season which in summer was absolutely amazing because they still had the spice markets and I'm sure they do to today which are just amazing places to go into and fruit and vegetable you know is just lots of it beautiful beautiful stone fruits but we didn't know that you were supposed to be buying that stuff and preparing it for the winter so that you had something to eat and oh. so we got to our first winter and we had no food. <laughs> so suffice to say, we arrived in this hot, dusty, you know, really isolated and difficult place to live with a language that we didn't yet really know. And I, my health just deteriorated, not surprisingly. There was a lot of stresses on it. We had to get around in the heat on public transport. You know, post-Soviet countries were really foreboding and and the people were not happy people you know everywhere you went there was confrontation there were fights on the buses there were fights in the line to get your bread and so on and I used to have to walk to well we would take turns in getting up at five o'clock to walk about two miles down to where this lady had a cow and you'd get the milk from her into a jar and bring it home and then you'd have to boil it and so on to and you know just the daily tasks were you know excruciatingly painful for me in terms of exhaustion and so it was all we could do to live to be honest I I John did a lot of work he ended up working for the university they're just teaching economics as an economist and we did work while we were there but I just really couldn't function I remember multiple times kind of 
dragging myself out of the shower, laying down for kind of half an hour trying to get my breath back and then getting up and trying to get out the door to just walk down the road to get some food and then just turning yeah. around and going back in and laying down for the rest of the day. I just, I just couldn't yeah. do it. <laughs> just even hearing you say that, I'm like, yep, that's what's this morning, you know. Like you get out of the shower, it's like, where's yeah, the bed? Exactly. <laughs> like, I need to lie exactly. down. And then you're like, I'm good, I'm good. And you stand up and you think, I'm yeah, so not good. I just I want to lie down And again. then when you're laying down, yeah. you're like, you know, we had no TV. There was no TV, no radio, no internet. So you, your mind's fine. So you're laying down going, what the heck, this is, you know, I've got to do something. I'm, a, I'm an absolute um, doer. Yeah. And then you'd get up and you're just like, <laughs> you know, no, yep. cannot do. And then um, on top of that we had, you know, the, the, the Soviets were just wonderful at spreading all sorts of chemicals on everything. So substances that were equivalent to Agent Orange were used on the cotton industry out there. They, you know, there was hepatitis was rife in Uzbekistan and it was quite funny because John had had this liver failure so he was trying not to drink and here he is in post-Soviet Central Asia and they're all like trying to shove vodka down in him and he'd be like I can't drink vodka you know I've had hepatitis they're like hepatitis we've had hepatitis four times we still drink vodka so anyway it was a challenging time and I was getting worse and worse and then losing more and more weight and you know seriously going downhill and then there was no even doctors there really they had all basically left there was certainly no medication I got pneumonia and was very unwell and don't remember kind of three days of my life and then fortunately for us uh, an American nurse flew in at that time and heard that I was unwell and came with some antibiotics and I look back now with my medical knowledge thinking I was just really fortunate she came that Mm. time so it became clear that we had to do something and the question was do we leave this country do we try and get back to Australia and right at that point we heard that there was an Australian doctor who was coming out to Kazakhstan which is the country next to Uzbekistan and that he was coming out essentially to provide health services for internationals like us who were in the region doing this kind of work because you know, it became very clear that there weren't services available within the country at that time. So we decided that we would go to Kazakhstan. We had to wait a month or so before he arrived and we would make an appointment to go see him. And that was no easy feat in itself. You had to have a visa to even leave the city that we were living in. So it was another whole saga just getting there on a crowded bus across borders, all the rest of it. We arrived in Alma-Ata in Kazakhstan and I remember this so clearly, you know, it's one of those entrenched in my mind kind of experiences. I consider myself robust, strong, all the rest of it. I knew that I had a condition that was clearly associated with standing up. To me, I just thought I was going to walk in, see a doctor who was going to go, oh, yeah, we know what this is because it's so obvious. It never entered my mind that there would be anything other than that. And it was a journey in itself. We got there. He was just holding his clinic in someone's home, another international. In fact, the other person was a doctor. She was a young doctor and her family was living there. And this guy was a more senior kind of experienced GP. And so she had asked him to come and run this clinic and we met her and then we went in to see this doctor. I was exhausted, but, of course, I probably looked 
relatively healthy, probably a bit skinny, which probably added to the perception of this is a young, you know, female with an eating disorder. Maybe I don't know what he thought, but mm. we explained the story and I just remember this blank look on his face that I couldn't quite interpret, but there was no give back. There was no kind of, oh, you poor thing or anything else. There was just this silence and this kind of look. And he took my blood pressure and said, oh, it's a bit low, but you're okay kind of thing. And your heart rate's fine. And I said, well, can I just show you something? And I stood up, almost fainted. And he took my heart rate and he just didn't say anything. And I sat back down and I said, my heart rate goes really high. Like, have you not noticed? And yeah. he still didn't say anything. And there was just this awkward silence. And he kind of said, after a little while, he said, look, I don't think there's anything that we can help you with. And that was it. I was just so confused. I knew that there was something going on that I didn't quite know. You know, I knew there was something that he was thinking that he wasn't. You know there's something. Yeah. And yeah. so anyway, I, I was devastated because it, it had taken every ounce of effort, money, time, you know, to get us across the water to this place to our hope of seeing a doctor and that was it. It wasn't even a... Wasn't even go, let's send no. you here or let's look further or that must be hard or, you know, yes, I can tell there's something wrong but I'm not sure what it is Nothing. or anything. Nothing. And then the next day, so we stayed with this young female doctor and her family overnight with the plan to leave the next day. We got up in the morning and we were having breakfast and she said to me, she was lovely and she said, oh, so I can't remember the doctor's name but Dr. So-and-so, so can I just ask you, he mentioned that maybe this is an anxiety issue. Are you anxious? And that's when the penny dropped. Then I could interpret everything that had gone on. Uh, I didn't really know what anxiety was, to be honest. It wasn't something we talked about much back then, but I had that yeah. concept that it was something to do with, you know, a psychiatric illness and that you were nervous. And my goodness, yeah. I didn't know anybody less nervous than myself, you know. And I just kind of looked at her and I went, is that what he told you? And then then I was initially just so furious that he would furious. have a discussion with her, letting her know that he thinks that my condition is one of anxiety without even having the balls, excuse me, saying, to say it to my face. You know, I was just so indignant and incensed by it. And I just said to her, I'm not anxious. And she said, no, I, I don't think you are either. <laughs> and um, that was it. That was our kind of last hope in that area. So I don't remember going home, but I, I do remember getting back to Uzbekistan and just being really probably closest in my life that I've been to, you know, depressed. I'm not given to negativity or depression, but I just had that thing of hopelessness. You had so much hope and it got ripped away and it was like my life yeah. is not my life. Like I'm not living the way that you were. Like you said, there were things you could do but you're not living. Like if we hear the first 10 to 15 minutes of this interview and what you were doing yeah. to now even thinking yeah. about you being, not being able to even get dressed after getting yeah. out of the shower. Oh, no. He hadn't taken the time to ask any of that, to ask what I, no. you know, what my what I thought of that. And I remember, you know, just the, what I likened it to, and I think I wrote this in a diary somewhere, which I'm it's fine, but I talked to my husband. I said, I feel like I was accused of murder. I was stood up in a courtroom 
to give my defence and then the judge says, no, you can't have a defence, you're guilty, off you go. That was it. Mm. And Mm. just being denied that Mm. natural course of justice to argue my case was just taken away. So anyway, there I was in Uzbekistan rapidly losing weight really unwell. And, you know, my husband never questioned it once. You know, there was never, he said when I was kind of explaining to him how I felt about what had happened, he was like, yeah, but he's just an idiot and we both know that's not the case, so don't think about it, you know. We should... That's easier easier said than done as a person. Yeah. Yes. And I think too, when you know you've used the word strong, you've used the words like, you know, you can get the job done, you can do it at all costs. Like being as young as you were, traveling overseas, working in different war-torn countries, like, you know, for you to be in a place that you say, I can't do something must have just been so foreign and so clear to you that something was wrong. And then this person didn't even acknowledge it. No, that's right. Nothing. Nothing. Zero. Stonewalled. So what happened? Yeah, so then we, you know, from John's point of view, my husband, it was like, well, we just need to go find the right doctor. So we contacted family at home and said, look, we're going to come home for a couple of months over that was the summer by then. They would have got a shock, did they, when you came home? (laughs) Yeah, and so actually for both of us, I remember, you know, my husband's six foot four and he weighed all of 75 kilos and I was about 55 and I'm tall too. And so I remember they were all very shocked when they saw us. <laughs> and uh, We arrived in Adelaide midsummer, you know, 40 something degrees and it was unbearably hot. But my father-in-law had set up an appointment first with his GP and then with the view to go see his cardiologist. And um, some of these doctors are probably still working here, so I'll be a bit careful. (laughs) (laughs) So we had the first appointment with the GP and we told the story. John was with me and uh, this GP just looked at John, didn't look at me, looked at John and said, look, John, clearly you've married a very delicate, anxious young bride. And I would suggest that Uzbekistan's not the place that you should be living. And that was in front of you? But not to me. And then he said, I'll refer you to the cardiologist, but I can tell you they won't find anything wrong with her. And I'm like, why are all these people so sure that there's nothing wrong with me? I still had no concept that this was actually a really well-documented condition. It had been going for years and years and years. It's documented in the literature right back into the 1800s that this kind of weird undiagnosed or at least poorly described condition existed so anyway we went off to see the cardiologist again John's just like oh look he's just a bit of a twat <laughs> GP don't what I'm already <laughs> yeah. in love with John so John if you're listening to this like <laughs> I'm like you go man you know because you needed someone like oh, if John wasn't there I in know. your what corner you like but and the sad thing is it hasn't changed like you know when you hear the stories and we're not going to get into them today but when I talk to other people with pots and my experience I got to told similar things now even though the awareness is even more we see POTS patients every day that's my work and it it doesn't change the story doesn't change it's the same and it's but it will change by these conversations hopefully (laughs) that's why we're having them so so yeah so we went off to see this professor of cardiology uh he put on a halter monitor which is one of those trackers you know, like an ecg that you carry around for 24 hours or so and i was like well this is awesome because i'll see it i i basically could barely stand up those few days it was so hot i i felt absolutely terrible 
We go back to see him after a few days. He does, you know, his usual kind of checks on my heart and then just I get the same story. He says, look, we looked at your, your halter monitor. Your heart rate when you're asleep at night time's down around 50. When you're up during the day, it's up around 150 to 200. He said, but it's normal sinus rhythm, meaning that there's no electrical fault. And he just was evading kind of the question again. And by now I knew where we were going and I knew that he, you know, had the same thought process. I just said to him straight out, I said, okay, if this is anxiety, I'm going to be anxious when I'm lying down. My heart rate will be high when I'm lying. Clearly it's not. It's only when I stand up. And he just went blank. He didn't respond to that. He just came back with a phrase that, you know, has stuck in my mind for years <laughs> from then to now, and that is we're told about young women like this in medical school and a certain portion of them present like you and there's nothing that we can do for you. I don't even have words. And I thought, yeah, you are told about young people, about young women in medical school, and this is generational gender medical stereotyping and gaslighting and I'm not that I knew those words back then but that's exactly what I was thinking and you have perpetuated throughout medical history for the last few decades I've subsequently I've gone on and done research about this and I feel like I can pinpoint where this narrative came from quite clearly and it came from outbreaks of viruses in the UK that were published in the British Medical Journal back in the 50s where two psychiatrists came out and described those pandemics as pandemics of hysteria because the people that were you know, majoritively affected by it. This is where the term my, myalgic encephalitis comes from or ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, comes yeah, from those yeah. outbreaks at the Royal Free Hospitals. Those psychiatrists had that paper published in the BMJ and their primary premise for saying that the condition was a psychiatric condition was that it was a majority of females that suffered from the condition, therefore it had to be hysteria. And so we can actually look back at those same men went and re-examined about something over a dozen different viral outbreaks where these kind of little epidemics of post-exertional malaise type syndrome started. In each one, they came to the conclusion that they were hysteria. And that got perpetuated in medical literature. And that same narrative has existed from then till now. And it's, it's still out there today. It is indeed. And so there we were standing, having travelled halfway around the world in this cardiologist's office, and he's just declared that he knows because he was told by his superiors in medical school that this is a condition of the psychiatric mind. And I'm standing there without a university education going, no, just a minute, there's a rational discussion that we can have here. If this is anxiety... Mm -hmm. My heart rate will be high whether I'm laying or not. Mm -hmm. It clearly isn't. So rationally, this cannot be <laughs> anxiety. But no, I was, again, rendered completely voiceless. We just left that office and that was really the last time I ever tried to seek help for POTS. And Really? We went back to Uzbekistan and obviously didn't go so well. I 
you know, weren't managing. And of course, because I had no diagnosis, I had no ability to be told or even to explore or know what was exacerbating my symptoms. And like you said, you didn't yeah. make the association with standing up. Well, I didn't make the association with heat. No. If I th- think about it now, of course, every time I got out of a shower or a bath, I was living in hot countries. But it's more subtle than that. And because it's a fluctuating condition, you can start relating it to all sorts of things. I mean, I remember going through all the things I was eating and going, oh, it was that. I ate that. (laughs) Yeah, I've done that this week. I've had a shocking seven days and I'm like, was it that I did X or was it that I had one beer? I know that alcohol can So was it the one beer? Was it the five sips? Was it the, you know, like you go mad just trying to work out what is causing the condition. That's right. alone when someone, the doctor's told you that it's something in your head. Yeah, and, and it's fluctuating and there are environmental stresses and triggers that obviously make it worse and we're, that's part of what our role is now as, and my role as a clinician. I, you know, I don't pretend that we offer any miracle cures to this condition, but we know that lifestyle alterations and some medication certainly can improve quality of life in the patients and giving, empowering them to know what those things are makes a massive difference to their life. Just telling them they're not mad is a great thing in terms of their ability to cope with this condition. So we spent a bit more time in Uzbekistan, but then we, we it was clear we had to leave and I was getting sicker and sicker and thinner and thinner. We decided right at that point, John got offered a role as a finance officer, international finance officer for one of these big kind of international aid organisations and it was back in England and who doesn't want to go live in England when you're 20, whatever. So we're like, yeah, we'll go. And we went back and when I, you know, I remember arriving back there just exhausted in all these problems and then I don't actually remember the point at which those problems disappeared but they definitely got better. And now I look back and, of course, go, well, we moved to a cold climate And we moved to the north of England, actually, so it was a very cold climate. And I ended up getting pregnant and having my first three children there. Pregnancy treated me really well. They say that. They say it can go either way with pregnancy. Yeah, that's right. And often a lot of our patients, we know, so we have a large cohort of POTS patients through our clinic, over 500, and most of them, the majority of them actually, do relatively well in pregnancy and that's because when you're pregnant your body produces a lot of blood volume a lot more than you're used to having so you get that lift in blood pressure you get less of the triggering of the kind of compensatory mechanisms that cause all those terrible POTS type symptoms so yeah is this why you had four children because it was like I feel good I'm going to keep being pregnant. Like, let's have another one. (laughs) I do think that is a little bit it because, of course, it all goes (laughs) pear-shaped after each pregnancy, and it did. And I look back and I go, what was I thinking? But I think I was kind of going, oh, no, you know, I actually felt pretty well while I was pregnant. And so I was like, well, let's do another one. And forgetting, you know, the disaster that kind of happened with each, you know, birth of the pain. Yeah, exactly. So I just soldiered on. I never actually got a diagnosis for POTS. It fluctuated. I had some pretty bad episodes, you know, throughout my kids' younger years. But I pretty much improved to the state that I could just work. By then I'd done my nursing and 
you know, I used to throw the oximeter on while I was at work and I was a bit breathless every so often. There was my heart rate 150 again and so on. I could push through a lot of stuff and I didn't have that incredible, all that kind of adrenaline rush stuff that you get when you first get POTS does tend to settle down in some people. And that's either you get more accustomed to it or it just isn't so dramatic. I'm not sure which sometimes mm. my and the fatigue, by the sounds of it, lifted as well. I think that fatigue is debilitating by itself without even the other symptoms sometimes. Yeah. And I think, you know, there is an element to which for me, and fatigue is one of those things that is experienced on different levels in POTS. And, you know, look, we think that ME, CFS and POTS are very similar disorders and possibly even the same underlying kind of disorder it's just that the it, they work themselves out in different ways so you have a lot of POTS patients with extreme fatigue but you get a whole bunch of POTS patients with no fatigue at all and you get a lot of MECFS patients with so that's your chronic fatigue syndrome patients or people with a lot of autonomic dysfunction but you get some with no autonomic dysfunction so somewhere in that large mm. kind of cohort they're, they're very similar they're female dominated conditions they tend to be environmentally triggered by viruses predominantly and they present very similarly you know the brain fog the orthostatic intolerance and the fatigue is the one thing that's quite difficult to identify who's going to get it and why are they going to get it I've had episodes of extraordinary fatigue where I mean, I remember in Uzbekistan, kind of John bringing me something to eat, and just the effort of trying to sit up. I just thought, I just mm. feel like I'm never going to be able to do another thing in my life. But yeah, I can't pretend I'm not fatigued every day. If you, I mean, if you really ask me any moment in any day, I never feel not fatigued. But I do note that I'm able to ignore my fatigue to a certain level and that my fatigue doesn't worsen with the more I do it's not like going and resting mm -hmm. is makes it any better for me so for me and this is different for everybody for me pushing through fatigue is something that I can do interesting you say that because that's one of the things that because I was exercise mm, intolerant which is yeah. also a very common symptom I went from being a I completed a half iron and three weeks later started to get pots and then couldn't even walk around the block like literally mm. couldn't walk one length of the block without getting puffed having to sit down and the thing that I've learned I stopped training and now since getting the diagnosis I've started walking every day religiously and there's a level if I don't do enough I actually yeah. get worse and if I you know get to a level and I don't do too much then there's kind of a sweet spot there and that's individual for everyone I think. It is and I think that's part of the management of POTS is having people alongside you and particularly well-trained exercise physiologists who understand triggering of this condition and exercise intolerance to help you to learn what your thresholds are. So I went along you know managing life quite well until I just about turned 50 I was 49 and I went and did a 35k walk with a friend which I'd been training for I mean I'd go do 20k walks all the time every weekend and I was into trail running and I it was actually I'd been up on a trail run one day and I thought wow look at me I'm nearly 50 I had pots all my life I'm not even puffed doing this 7k run up here out in wilderness loved it you know, just on top of the world thinking I never thought I'd get back to being this fit. And then I went to do that same run the next week and I couldn't 
even walk up the hill and my heart rate was going through the roof and I thought, mm. oh, this is weird, What what is this about? And that was the start. By the next week I was in hospital unable to stand and I had six months of just probably the worst ever pot symptoms I've had and it came right after that 35K walk and I feel like I knew at the end of that walk, which we did in a really quick pace, so it was, you know, it wasn't just a stroll. I knew something wasn't quite right. I was starting to feel that extreme kind of, I, I can't describe it, but except to say that it's an exercise, everything was hurting. Mm. I was really inflamed. I knew I was really inflamed, but I can't even explain that except for to say I had like bleeding into some of my joints, which is a sign of inflammation. So anyway, I went downhill really quickly and I, I really do look back at that and think, yeah, I definitely pushed myself past a point that my body allows and that precipitated one of the worst kind of POTS crashes I've ever had really. Mm. And I think anyone out there listening that lives with a chronic illness or lives with one of the autonomic or autoimmune diseases that kind of have these flare-ups, it's so, I mean, you're probably listening to this going, yes, I, you know, you don't know that you're pushing the boundary mm. when you're there or or do you live a life where you live it behind closed doors or, you know, we don't have those answers and I don't know that we ever will in medicine, but I think it's just listening to you, it's a good example of where you were actually feeling like, wow, look at where I've got to, this is amazing and then there's a crash after yeah. that. Yeah, there is. And, you know, with that comes all the guilt and, oh, my word, all the advice from every person, you know, maybe you just should do more yoga. <laughs> what's yeah. what's the stress in your life that has precipitated this? And yeah. I, I'm just like, we've all been through emotional stresses. It's not like we don't all acknowledge that, yes, emotional stress can lead to poor health. I mean, that's a proven medical fact and everybody relates to it. You know, you go organise a wedding and who gets sick afterwards? The bride and groom always get colds and run down. You know, mm. your body reacts to stress. But this is different. This is this is a funky disease that it is next level deterioration and it's next level dysfunction it's hard to predict and it it's not helpful actually kind of putting it back on to the person and that's what I found every time because they're doing their best that's right and you know you should be able to actually go for a 35k walk if you've trained for it <laughs> and not yeah. expect to spend the next yeah. six months in and out of hospital just talking about pots a little bit we've talked about some of the signs and symptoms um, that people can get. We haven't spoken at all about the long COVID mm. aspect of that either. So maybe if we just put on your foundation yeah. hat for a little bit and your nurse's hat and have a little bit of chat around POTS and because some people may be able to go and get checked and where do they go and what, you know, how hard do they push when a doctor says no and, yeah. you know, those kind of conversations. So I'll put on both my researcher hat and my foundation hat. So I work as a clinical nurse with Professor Dennis Lau. So he's a cardiologist electrophysiologists so they're doctors that look after the electrics of the heart and typically they're the kind of specialists that people with POTS type symptoms get sent to because if anybody complains of tachycardia or racing heart or palpitations or any of this they usually get sent for a checkout 
with an EP, we call them, electrophysiologists. I love that you say that because I haven't even heard of that. We live in the country and like so our specialists are few and far between. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and that's, that's some of the challenges again, right? Like when you're in East Amboy yeah. and us in the country, like you don't have these experts on at your fingertips and these specialists in the area. No. So typically actually what happens is people go to their GP and the, the symptoms are hard to describe. The GP might send them for a halter monitor whether they live in the country or not. But the halter monitor gets reported by people who are looking for what we call arrhythmias or electrical faults in the heart. And there is no electrical fault in the POTS patient. Now, occasionally POTS patients might have an electrical fault condition, but that's separate to their POTS. And so these halter monitors get reported as normal. And that's all the GP has to go on, that they're normal. But if you and I sat down and looked at them, we'd go, yeah, that's actually not normal because although there's no electrical fault, we can see that that patient's heart rate when they're upright and during the daily hours is sitting well above 100 for a lot of people. And we all know that's mm. not normal. And so they, they are actually not normal, but that's all the GP has to go on. So usually they go, well, I can't really send them off to a specialist. We don't know really what's wrong with you, but don't worry, it's not going to kill you. So off you go, which is the bit that's not really helpful at all. And so anyway, I'm, I'm working in a clinic with Professor Lau. Now he's also a researcher and I am doing my PhD with him. And so my PhD was starting to be in POTS. That was the idea. And I started just when the COVID pandemic hit off. And of course, we knew along with anybody that works in this area that that was going to precipitate a lot of POTS presentations. So immediately we started looking at POTS in people who had had COVID and over the first part of my PhD that merged into this new name that people started calling it, which was long COVID, uh, which was a way of explaining or describing symptoms that persisted past that first acute stage of COVID. So my PhD is in long COVID and I was fortunate enough to get funding from a fabulous body in the US called Standing Up to POTS. That's a foundation over there that supports research into POTS and they gave me a grant to research this. So I have my clinical hat where I look after patients. I do all the assessment on patients coming in to be assessed for POTS-like symptoms. They may not know that name, but that's what we assess them for. Plus, I do research where we're doing a study looking at comparing people with known POTS with healthy controls and those who have long COVID and basically doing a lot of complicated testing to see if there's any difference between those with long COVID, those with POTS and those who are healthy adults. And we're at the end of that study. I just need about five more controls and I can actually publish the study. And that study has shown what we knew to be the case and that is the majority of people with long COVID appear to have POTS. And that's no big surprise. If they don't have POTS, they typically also have ME-CFS. They're the two kind of things that we clearly see. And so I have to be clear around that. These people can get all sorts of neurological damage from COVID. And when we talk about long COVID, we are defining it as people with unexplained symptoms after COVID. So if you get nervous system damage to your central nervous system from COVID, you might end up with a certain neurological disorder, that is an 
explained condition, just like if you get myocarditis or heart damage to the muscle of the heart, that has an explainable mechanism from COVID. So those people don't fall into the long COVID category. They fall into, you know, damage from COVID and they will be diagnosed with a certain kind of disease that has stemmed from that. But when we talk about long COVID, we're talking about people who may have had a mild COVID infection or they may have you know, been in bed for a few days, but sometime after that infection, within the first two months of getting COVID, they develop symptoms that may, they may even get slightly better and feel like they can go back to work. And then suddenly they will have a decline in health and they develop symptoms that are unexplained by any other mechanism. And those symptoms usually revolve around brain fog, fatigue, exercise intolerance, shortness of breath, that's not explained by lung damage. And so those people we've been investigating, they present to our clinic, some of them ring us up and they hear about our study and they want to be tested and be part of the study. And we have an absolutely fantastic patient cohort who are just, you know, we have people who drive from interstate very unwell to participate in our study just so that they can well, number one, find out what's wrong with them, but two, they really genuinely want to help us with with that. So that brings us back to my researcher hat. Every day in clinic, I hear the same stories and I got another email last night from another COVID patient, and this I would get multiple of these a day, that said that they believe after listening to other podcasts or things that I've written or looking at the foundation website that they believe they've got POTS. They talk to their practitioners and almost universally they get back the answer, well, even if you got diagnosed with POTS, it wouldn't change anything. You just need to Mm. learn to live with this. And that's just manifestly untrue. It is manifestly untrue and it's unfair because POTS is a complicated multi-system disorder. It takes a lot of expertise. You know, I've got really kind of 15 years of following research and working on this, and Professor Lau has had the last 10 years dedicated to it. There is a lot of expertise in managing someone with POTS. There's lots of things to be thinking about. It's a lot of trial and error management, but there are so many things that can help change quality of life if you enable the individual to understand it and make these links for them. And there are medications that do improve people. Now, we can't put our hand on the heart and say everybody that we put on medication gets a lot better, but most people without a doubt have some improvement on the medication. And, you know, I'll detail a a story. We had uh, a patient now, she wasn't long COVID, but similarly had, I think, a viral infection and developed quite significant POTS. She was a high-level documentary filmmaker and she lost her brain really in the in the process of getting pots. Not only was she fatigued and exercise intolerance, but she just couldn't really think and articulate and plan and do any of those things that were really important to her work. And so she came to see us not that long ago and, you know, I often sit there and you have to go through a long process of assessing. It takes me an hour and a half to spend with people to do all the function testing that we do and then to explain to them what the autonomic nervous system is and why does it matter when it breaks down. And that's 
new for a lot of people that even that yeah. word autonomic system and that's what the Jess comes on and I mentioned earlier episode 26 that talks a lot about the autonomic system and I was saying in that episode that I'd never heard that word before until the day before I did her podcast yeah. and then she gets on and talks about it and then I get pots of all things I was like did I jinx it but you know that I don't even think people know what the autonomic system is no and I, look to be honest I didn't really know it either and it was a revelation to me, you know, this story could go on for days, Ellie. So um, I'm just like, there's so many, it's like a big web, right, of different stories in my life. Mm. But I, my children, two of, at least two of my children have POTS. And it's not unusual for people in families to, because there's a comorbid condition that has to do with your, so there's a condition that goes with POTS that, that certain people with this hypermobility syndrome are more predisposed to getting POTS and our family has that condition and we didn't I didn't even realize that it was connected to POTS until my own daughter who had had multiple dislocations and lots of different problems got very unwell when she was 14 and she developed the vomiting side of this she lost weight and that's when I first went just a minute is this is this why this I w- was unable to eat and why I lost weight when I had both of those big flares, the first one when mm. I was 24 and then when I was 49? And, yes, the answer is yes, it was. It, that that gastric dysfunction was part of my POTS and I didn't realise that until I was standing with the doctor in a hospital looking at my daughter vomiting extraordinary amounts of food with this funky heart rate and blood pressure that didn't match in a way that we would expect in an unwell patient and I just had this I actually was lecturing in anatomy and physiology at the time I knew what the autonomic nervous system was but I'd never associated it with POTS ever and I just turned to this doctor and I said she's got autonomic dysfunction that was my revelation you know and I'd had POTS for years And it was the first time I ever put it together myself and I went back. I was working at Monash University as an academic at the time and I went back and did a bit more reading and I'm like, oh, my word, this is autonomic dysfunction. That's what POTS is. The whole system, autonomic nervous system has gone defunct. Now, where symptom is predominantly fatigue or brain fog are the two main ones and in some people it might be pain. In other people, it might actually be the vision disturbance that they have. And in a lot of people, it's a gastrointestinal disturbance, which is really quite debilitating. And we we have patients in Australia, multitude of them really, a small number compared to the large amount of people with POTS, but lots of people who are reliant on nasogastric feeding. In fact, it's nasojejunal, so it goes down into their small bowel because they have to bypass their stomach because they just can't tolerate food anymore. So, Mm. yeah. It's scary. And I think that's one of the things with POTS is there's such an array of symptoms and people's experience and not enough known information in Australia at least with our medical field and our and wider you know whether that be hospitals nurses doctors physios like the whole allied health nutritionalists like I had never heard of it before now that's you know I'm not a doctor but 
Like it's like this whole new world's opened up and it's like how do we not know about it? How does everyone not know to test for POTS if something like this happens? And if you think about our young teenagers where it's often occurring, like that's setting their whole life up. If they're being told that it's in their head when it's actually something going on in their body as well, how are they meant to find their sense of self-worth and who they are? And I don't know. Like I just feel like it's devastating. So the things that people need to know about POTS is – anywhere from 80 to 95% of people that suffer from POTS are females and the majority of those are in childbearing, you know, years when they get POTS and it affects them largely in the middle of those childbearing kind of years. So the mean age, so I'm actually on my screen over here, I have the article that we're working on we hope to submit soon which is looking at quality of life in our POTS cohort and looking at it from a very health economics-based thing. But, you know, we've done these comparative studies and this is not peer-reviewed, so this is just, you know, our experience at this point in time, but we hope that it will be published soon. The quality of life in our patients is worse than you know, any of the major diseases that have been investigated, such as diabetes, heart disease, some of the neoplasms, and it's on par with multiple sclerosis. That's what has been shown in other research, and this is what ours will echo in a more formalistic kind of way. That's really hard to conceptualise for somebody uh, particularly a medical practitioner who cannot see what they associate as being normal disease states and deterioration, that you cannot put a finger on what it's like to have POTS and why are these patients kind of debilitated in bed. You know, it's, you can't see mm. what is causing that. There's no cancer to see in a scan. There's there's no kind mm. of bacteria in the blood and it's very hard for them to conceptualise it. But what we see is a whole swathe of young girls across Australia and definitely across the world whose whole future directions in terms of education, earning capacity, social interaction, their prospects of partnering, of having children are completely and utterly decimated by this disease that has Mm. no recognition in our health system and no answer in terms of provision of public health management of that condition and it's absolutely criminal and we were talking about this just before we got on for the podcast it was like how do we help in this space and and you said that we there may be something coming out soon that I can pop in our challenges that change us Facebook group where people can help with this for the recognition is that right yeah that's right one of the people who listeners may not be familiar with this but actually around the world there is a consensus on disease states and we give codes to disease states so if you have diabetes and you are taken to hospital for something related to your diabetes there's actually coders that code in the background and they will go through your admission and go oh that person had diabetes we will apply the diabetes code to their admission applying a code is then used for funding So the government will distribute funds according to different codes. They will also resource research according to different codes. Now, quite criminally, POTS was never given a code. The code is called the ICD code, the International Classification of Disease Code. 
And uh, around the world, everybody uses the current iteration of the ICD classification system. And at the moment around the world, most countries are using the version 10. There is a version 11, which POTS has been admitted to. So there will be an ICD code for POTS in version 11, but nobody's using it at the moment, which means that still Mm -hmm. in every country in the world, when someone presents to a hospital with POTS, which they do a lot, and if we look at the long COVID, you know, in our study we asked people if they'd been admitted to hospital or presented to emergency department, and they do, they present frequently because they're presenting with, you know, they collapse, they have unconscious collapses, they get a lot of tachycardia, so they they present two, three, four, five times to emergency, get sent home all the time. None of those have been recorded under POTS, which means that, the people making decisions about resourcing health in our country probably don't even know POTS exist. And certainly POTS is not getting the money dedicated to it that it should be. But even worse than that, other conditions are being allocated money on the basis of these POTS patients presenting to hospitals. So every time a POTS mm. patient presents with syncope or tachycardia, that ICD code is being classified as cardiac disease which it's not. Something else. Now, in America, when long COVID was, you know, coming to the forefront, there was a big collaborative push to put a presentation together to ask for an emergency passing of an ICD code for POTS into the current 10 version to allow for collecting of data around POTS and particularly with the view that we could capture how many people with long COVID have POTS and that was passed in America and so the Americans have that but we don't have it in Australia and we have yet to be able to find out from the relevant authorities when they envisage that the version 11 will be used in Australia but it looks like it's not going to be anytime soon and we feel that it's really important that we pursue that and one thing that we could do is to try and get our community to really advocate independently to the health authorities to have an emergency POTS ICD code put in to the current version just like the Americans have done to facilitate better understanding of not only long COVID but how many people in Australia are presenting with POTS. So we plan, we've only just decided to do this but we do plan in the next week or so of providing some advocacy information on our website so that anyone with POTS or family members with POTS can independently write to their MPs or to the relevant health authorities that we refer them to 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 say look you know we need this in this country yeah yeah and so we'll definitely put that in the show notes so that anyone anyone that has been affected by POTS or has someone in their family by POTS absolutely jump on and have a look at that. I guess my question here, because we will need to finish up soon for today, but my question is if someone's listening to this and they're like, mm. this sounds familiar or they've had a few sparks go off in their mind or they're like, well, maybe I should be looking at this, what what steps could they take or who? What's, who's the specialist yeah. they need to see or do they reach out to the clinic in Adelaide? So this is our daily question and I wish I had a better answer for you all because I know there's a lot of you out there and we, we get emails daily asking for this to the point that we can't really respond much anymore. But firstly, I would say it is really important to get a GP that you can work with. Now, they may not be educated on POTS, but if you can find a GP that you feel you could work with to both learn this journey, then we we are finding a lot of openness now from GPs 
in understanding a bit more, particularly if you've had COVID, you know, there's a lot more openness to this now. People realising, no, what mm-hmm. we were taught in medical school isn't right. These people have gone from being mm-hmm. doctors, lawyers, teachers, mothers to nothing, yep. and that's not psychiatric. So I would say, number one, find a GP that you can work with. Number two, have a look at our website. So that's thepotsfoundation.org.au. And you will find some information around what the symptoms are and what the testing is and also some of the lifestyle changes. So there are some things that people can do Mm. in their lifestyle, dietary and fluid intake and and so on. For me personally, and again, it's different for everyone, has made the world of difference in my world. I've gone from not being functioning at all, not functioning at all, to being at least able back at work. I'm not where I was, but I'm like, out in the world again, you know, from the fluid and the salt and the, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And if you do a few of those things together, they incrementally kind of improve you to the point Mm. that you can then engage in some of the other things as well because sometimes the exercise is a key to people's response and we have to be very careful with exercise. And I, I do highly recommend that people don't go out on exercise regimes on their own but that they engage exercise physiologist and if you do a bit of searching for people exercise physiologists or physiotherapists you will find a few clinics around Australia that specialize in conditions like POTS, ME, CFS and long COVID. If those lifestyle adjustments don't improve your health to the point that you can get back functionally to what you were doing you probably do need medication management and It's not as simple as here's the pill for POTS. It does take a lot of skill set for trial and error. There are some medications that are contraindicated in some people with POTS because if there's certain aspects about their condition, that means that you give them the wrong tablet, they'll get worse. Yeah, or like I have a I have a vasoconstriction syndrome Correct. from my brain condition, which is counteractive, like to what POTS is. So there's, you know, you do need that specialist and that person that's looking over your individual circumstances. It is very complicated, and what we are lacking is the ability to connect our community with specialists to manage their POTS. So we deliberately mm-hmm. targeted. Uh, medical health professional education is our first goal this year and so we're having uh, the first ever really POTS conference in Australia on the 29th of October in Adelaide and by webinar and that is an invite to any health professionals so allied health particularly exercise physiology and physiotherapy that work in this domain and dietitians, but also we really are trying to target cardiologists and GPs to get more of a base of people that are at least POTS aware. They may not be POTS experienced, but if we the more POTS aware doctors out there, we can get the better. So we would love your community to really pass on that information to their doctors, to their GPs and get them on board with that. Yep. And We will pop that in the show notes. We'll pop it in our Facebook challenges that change us community group. Absolutely. Because, you know, you've got two women sitting here that were both very high functioning and, you know, both of us by the sounds of it wanted to give to others Mm. our whole life. And then with this condition, you know, really pulled us up for a little while. So you're much further along the condition than I am. I'm still learning about it. But, you know, there's the things that I've learned about have made a huge difference in my life. But personally, having the diagnosis also meant that I was heard. 
and validated and understood. It's the difference is I can't even put words around it. It's criminal actually to continue to tell people that a diagnosis won't make a difference. It makes so much difference. It's not funny. I mean, number one, it just empowers people to have something to target, to learn about the condition. Once they understand the condition, they have better chances of managing it. But if you just shut that out, you are putting a sentence to people's lives that without any justification for that. So I strongly, I strongly, you know, you and I, Ali, we both know there is no point living a victim to chronic health and and we don't and we're mm-hmm. not encouraging that. But what we're encouraging is that people be enabled to, to manage and understand their own health condition so that they're not so reliant on the medical system for improvement in their health. Because no one cares more about you, unfortunately, than you or perhaps your partner. We are going to need to finish up. I could, I always say this on all the podcasts, but I could keep talking all day. And sometimes, particularly when I meet someone for the first time, I notice that they're the ones that go the longest because I'm like, (laughs) I don't want to get you off here. (laughs) And so I really love to finish the podcast with asking the question, who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, I hope all my kids aren't listening to this. <laughs> I'm going to, I don't play favourites. My kids all have a little messenger system between them and I think they argue over who's the favourite. But one of my children just, she's just got the quickest wit ever and I noticed when she comes home, she lives in Melbourne, there's a lot more laughter around the house. She really she can both infuriate you, but you just cannot <laughs> help but laugh when she is. So I love to have a bit of that every so often because I am, I, you know, I live in a pretty serious space these days and it's probably not that helpful for me. So, yeah, kudos to my second daughter who keeps us all laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Claire, for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Ali. It's been fantastic. I could do this all day, I think, with you, but we won't. <laughs> As mentioned, the POTS Foundation is running a scientific conference for health professionals on the 29th of October, face-to-face and online. So if this is something that you're interested in, jump on their website or Instagram page, which will also be in our show notes. I'm going to help support the foundation this month to raise awareness with the hashtag unseen unheard and there is a campaign about to be launched so jump into the challenges that change us facebook community to stay tuned for this information or check out the pots foundation website and socials and of course if you know someone that's suffering from long covid pots or they're having trouble standing up please share this interview with them as it might be the piece of information they're looking for I'm really looking forward to next week. We have a pretty exciting guest. So I will see you all when you tune in on Monday morning. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. Oh, 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 oh,